Thank you so much for being here. It's my pleasure to kick off our NGHS fourth annual research and innovation month activity. And as I said, this is the fourth year we're holding this event. My name is Holly Jones. I'm the director of research here at Northeast Georgia Health System. And I'm just thrilled to be here today to kick off this event. Um, and this is their first event of this month. And I'm gonna learn more from our speakers today. These are our award-winning speakers. Thrilled to have them here. Thank you for joining us. And thank you to everyone here in person, as well as the many that we have online that could not be here in person. I'd like to thank our planning committee members and everyone who helped to make this event possible today. Um, in addition to that, I want to draw your attention just while I give a, a brief intro to this website. Um, and the fact that in addition to our mission in improving the health of our community and all we do, we uh, do that through research and innovation. So please use your phone to scan the QR code today to learn more about the research and innovation that is online that's available for you to see. Our um, team worked very hard to compile the award-winning research that's been conducted throughout the year. So this website is a showcase of what your colleagues and the leaders at this organization have been publishing and presenting nationally, internationally, and beyond. So please take a look at that content as we've curated this for your visibility to better understand the amazing work that's going on here at Northeast Georgia Health System. In fact, we started this event back in 2020 during the height of the pandemic. And we held a one day celebration to recognize the work of those of you throughout the health system with a passion for excellence that are going well above and beyond the work you do every day to improve the health of our community and through research and innovation. We quickly expanded from one day to an entire week and now to a month long celebration. So you can see over the last four years how much we've grown. And thank you to all of you who come in each day and bring your best. You not only deliver outstanding care to our community, but you also truly care about leading improvements in the standard of care. Our invited speakers and many of you are leaders. You're dedicated to challenging and rewarding careers in healthcare. Without clinical research and innovation, we would not have the new drug and medical device therapies that are coming to the market today. It's a very exciting time to be in healthcare and I have the privilege to be a part of it. We want, we want here to be a part of that solution to improve, but also effectively transform care here today for our patients in our local community, nationally, and also beyond. So in order to, um, to thank you all for, for being here today, please enjoy the lunch that's outside um, from an order of events perspective. Again, I gave a brief intro. We'll have our first speaker um, come up. Suzanne is gonna introduce our first speaker uh, as well as Dr. Samity. So thank you so much for being here today and we'll kick off the event with Dr. Taylor. We'll have a short break and then we'll actually have our event um, extended to one o'clock and we'll be welcoming Dr. Ellis. So um, we'll go ahead and get started. Please join me in welcoming Suzanne McNeil. Well, good afternoon, everybody. It's so great to see you all in the seats today. And for those of you joining online, thank you so much for tuning in. 
I'm so excited to be sharing this day with the research team and Grand Rounds and this collaboration that we pulled together to pull this amazing, these amazing lineups of speakers that we have planned for you this month. Um, so I am just going to move forward and just take care of a couple of housekeeping announcements so we can go ahead and get started. So the planners for today's activity have disclosed no relevant financial relationships with commercial interests. Dr. Taylor and Dr. Ellis will disclose their relationships in their presentations. To claim credit for today, please take our evaluations. There will be a separate one for each presenter and they'll be dropped in the chat if you're online. And for those of you here in person today, you can grab that, um, that survey link with the QR code from Jennifer Reagan outside the door. If you have a question for the presenters, please hold on to them until the Q&A segment. Online viewers, feel free to put your questions in the chat and we'll read them out loud. And now without further ado, I'd like to introduce Dr. Samity who will introduce our first featured guest. All right, good afternoon. It's good to see everyone. Thanks to the wonderful AV team as always, hitting it out of the park. Uh, well, listen, it's really a great privilege uh, for me to introduce our, our speaker. And by the way, I, I do want to give kudos to um, Holly and her team that pull off this kind of research and innovation month every year. I, as someone who spent a lot of time in academia um, before I got here, this is also an academic center in many ways. And I think the, the work that you and your team do and John Delzell and others it really speak to that, right? We have five residency programs, we have two fellowship programs, we've got an innovation and research team. So um, uh, without further ado, I'd like to introduce our first speaker that, that has a very sort of unassuming title um, of her talk, Revolutionizing Healthcare, Employing Human-Centered Design to Become the Greatest Health System on Earth not just in the United States. So, um, but Angela Taylor is um, currently a professor of medicine and interventional cardiology and is the medical director of the coronary intensive care unit at the University of Virginia Heart and Vascular Center. In addition to her expertise as a really um, sought after um, interventional cardiologist focusing on these um, very, very complex lesions that she takes care of, She's the principal investigator or co-investigator in a number of very, very successful National Institute of Health funded basic and translational research endeavors. Um, and a lot of them sort of dovetail into work that's done in the cath lab as well, where she specializes in phenotyping uh, patients, their coronary arteries, both with imaging and physiology. Um, she also has done a lot of work using robust data management systems, statistical analyses, and specimen banking. She's absolutely passionate about precision medicine and is one of the leaders in the area um, um, to, in cardiovascular disease. Um, but in addition to her work in directing the CCU and the CVICU at the University of Virginia, she's also recently finished her MBA um, and she's very, very passionate about the patient experience, both inpatient, outpatient, and she's worked extremely closely with the nursing units, um, as well as with administration at UVA to make sure that the patient experience is absolutely seamless. So without further ado, uh, let me ask Dr. Taylor to come up and 
share with us her thoughts about how we we're going to revolutionize healthcare. <laughs> Well, considering that Habib and I have worked together before, I was a little bit worried about what he was going to say, but I got off easy. <laughs> Thank you for that, Habib. I want to talk to you today about revolutionizing healthcare because I really am passionate about this and I believe that it's something that we absolutely must do. These are my disclosures. I want you to meet Robert. He's a 65-year-old middle-aged man businessman, and he's very upbeat pretty much all the time, even when things aren't going so well. He's got two sisters, one of which is a physician in a local hospital near where he lives. The other is also a physician too, and she works for a pharmaceutical company and works mainly from home. One day Robert woke up and he was having a lot of lower back pain, and so he decided to go into his local PCP's office. He listened intently as she told him that this was probably musculoskeletal and was probably nothing to worry about, but she went through all the other things that this could possibly be, like kidney stones and, and other various things. Robert very patiently took notes because he knew both of his sisters were going to want details when he got home. His doctor also decided to do a few other tests just to be safe. One of those was a urinalysis, and that urinalysis showed blood. He was quickly rushed to have an ultrasound of his kidney done, assuming that he was probably going to have kidney stones. What they didn't find was kidney stones, but what they did find was a tumor. A couple weeks later, he underwent a CT scan, which showed a tumor and that it was probably cancer. He was then given an appointment for urology in three months. Luckily, his sister worked in the system, and she was able to get him in within two months' time. However, before he could get to that appointment, he called his sister at work because he couldn't feel anything from his waist down. His back was hurting worse, and he had fallen, and he'd probably fractured his ankle. His sister called the ambulance and got him quickly to the hospital. He was in the hospital emergency room for about six hours before he went underwent an MRI, which revealed everything everyone was worried about. He couldn't feel anything from the waist down because he had metastatic disease to his spine. Over the next several hours, lots of people came in to see Robert, doctors and nurses. And Robert was in a lot of pain. Really what he wanted was pain medication. He wanted to feel better, and he was afraid. And everyone came in, always smiling, always assuring him that he would get it. But it was about 2 o'clock in the morning, almost 12 hours later, before he actually got it. So at this point, Robert is really starting to feel less like a person and more like just any patient. And on top of that, he got the wrong medication. He got a medication that also thinned his blood, and that delayed the emergent spinal surgery that he needed to have. He was able to get this two days later, and what they found was a very undifferentiated tumor, so they couldn't even tell where it came from. So he had to wait a month before he could get his kidney out. He had his kidney surgery done, and his doctor told him, you know, you have an electronic medical record, but I don't want you to look at the results of your pathology until you come in to see me because it's probably just going to confuse you. So Robert goes on the computer. He sees that his pathology is there, and he also sees he's got an appointment with his doctor a month later. So now not only is Robert not feeling like a person, but he's not really feeling like a patient either. 
I think in our medical system, we have the ability to show a lot of sympathy. I think what the current medical system doesn't do is let us actually grow empathy. And this is what we need. I'm going to suggest to you today that our current profession-oriented medical model isn't working. And by profession-oriented medical model, I think of myself as a doctor, you think of yourself as a nurse, you think of yourself as an administrator, and we put ourselves into silos. I'm going to suggest today and hopefully convince you that this contributes to suboptimal patient outcomes in terms of mortality, length of stay, complications we don't want. In all of these specialty-specific metrics we have to deal with, like US News and World Report, and Vizian. It also leads to an unhealthy work culture. We have ineffective leadership sometimes. There's dysfunctional lines of communication. And we exist in this culture that's created by individual agendas rather than team agendas. This also leads to customer dissatisfaction with patients and families and also our referring physicians. And there are so many obstacles to entry into the health system that many patients never make it. In the end, this also leads to financial strain with ineffective stewardship, poor efficiency, and customer loss. So how did we get here? I think the tra traditional medical system doesn't really promote a functional team approach to patient care. I think this leads to individuals being disengaged, really due to a lack of empowerment to affect change. We're all doing what we do because we want to affect change in, the health, in, in patients' lives and healthcare. But this really leads to learned helplessness, where you really believe you can't change anything. And that doesn't happen just in our employees, but it happens in our patients too. I think there are four things that we need to focus on to fix this. One is our structure. Currently, we live in silos. We exist in parallel. We have little crosstalk sometimes. Our system is focused on metrics and not really on people. Problem solving generally doesn't occur in diverse multidisciplinary team settings, but often in silos. And those silos lead to ineffective communication. And our leadership often isn't recognized as a potential weakness. Leadership training isn't generally absent, it's generally absent. And there's often little effort to assess and improve leadership in many places. Well, can we change this? I wouldn't be standing up here if I didn't believe we could. I think we, have, we can improve organizational performance. We can improve patient outcomes. But we're going to have to do this with an intentional focus on leadership, on empathy, and on excellence in teamwork. We're going to have to change our structure from a profession-oriented structure to a patient needs-oriented leadership model. And I'm going to hopefully tell you what that looks like. This is going to involve coaching our leaders, developing emotional intelligence, empowering our teams, breaking down silos, and improving our communication. And I'll come back to this slide again at the end to show you in a specific example ways that we went about doing this. Now, I want to make a couple provocative statements. The first one is that I believe the healthcare system has decided what people need without actually knowing what they need. The second statement I'm going to make is, whoops, go back one, is that we've also not only decided that we know what they need, but we've already decided how we're going to provide it, whatever it is.
I want to introduce to you today the concept of human-centered design. This is really about creating the ultimate human experience. Embracing human-centered design means believing that all problems, even the seemingly intractable ones like poverty or gender equality or healthcare are actually solvable. It means believing that the people who actually face those problems every day are the ones who actually hold the key to the answer. The goal of human-centered design is to deeply understand the people that you're, you're looking to serve, to dream up scores of ideas, not one, but scores of them, and by that, create new innovative solutions that are rooted in people's actual needs. And being a human-centered designer is about believing that as long as you stay grounded in what you've learned from people, your team, and I'm gonna say team again, can arrive at new solutions that the world actually needs. I'm gonna explain human-centered design to you in an example of a team that I led over the summer. We were asked to figure out what are the needs of rural and remote populations. So the first step to human-centered design is understanding what you're dealing with to start with. So we went to the literature, first of all, to see what was out there. So about 60 million Americans, or one in five, live in rural areas. And I bet a lot of them live not so far from here. They have little access to health care. They're older. They generally have worse health conditions than urban dwellers do. About 20% of the population lives in rural areas, but only about 9% of America's doctors actually live there, or work there even. And paradoxically, these rural areas grow lots of great food that we all eat, but rural dwellers face difficulties affording healthy food. And very interestingly, where they do get their food, 90% of American population lives within 10 minutes of a Walmart, 75% live within five miles of a Dollar General, and 95% within 15 miles of a Dollar General. And this is where they shop for the most part. So access to healthcare and healthy food are significant problems in rural and remote areas, and I'm sure not many of these things surprise anyone in this room. The next thing that human-centered design requires us to do is field research. And by field research, I mean getting your hands dirty. I mean going out there where the people are and experiencing what they experience on a daily basis. How do they actually behave in real-life circumstances? What are their jobs to get done? Not what we think they need to get done, but what, they, what do they want to get done? And what are their workarounds? Because this turns out to be really important in understanding what we actually need to fix. But the goal of all of this is to establish empathy with the people you're now going to serve. There's a lot of tools and techniques we use to do this. We can interview people. We do this all the time. This is a relatively straightforward one. We interviewed doctors and nurses in healthcare. We interviewed them the ones that do telemedicine, the ones that see patients in their office. Um, we interviewed the patients as well. A day in the life. This is just where you follow someone around for a day, and you just see what they do. This, this is how we figured out everyone goes to Walmart or Dollar General, right? Um, how do they do telemedicine? How do they get to the hospital if they're going to? Error analysis. This turns out to be really important if you're talking about telemedicine for sure, right? If you don't understand what design features are contributing to error, you can't fix them. Fly on the wall. This is, again, another observation technique. But you watch people who are really good at something and really bad at something, and you learn what are the 
gain points? Where do people gain benefit from this? And what are the pain points? Where does it really hurt? And then we interview those same extreme users. And we put all of this together to better understand our target population. But this requires hours and hours and hours of spending time with the people you want to serve. From this, we gain three key insights. Rural healthcare is designed to meet the needs of the healthcare system and not of rural patients or providers. Retailers such as Walmart or Dollar General are in a position to provide healthcare actually at below market prices and still make a profit because of everything else they sell. And solutions for rural patients need to be delivered directly to these communities rather than the other way around. So we really have to reframe the problem because what we're now going to do is not really understand what is every single need of rural and remote patients, right? This is way too broad. We really need to focus on a specific activity that we can actually deliver. So we initially reframed our question by how might we empower low-income rural patients to achieve wellness? Well, we want them to achieve wellness, but that's still a bit broad. So we decided how might we provide high-fidelity telemedicine visits to rural Americans is actually where we wanted to start because we have to get these people into the healthcare system before we can do anything else. So we started to analyze all of our field data to decide how we were going to do this. And one of the things that you have to do is create a user journey map. This just maps out the entire experience of the patient and the provider, in this case, in a telemedicine visit. And it help us, helps us to find the pain points that we need to address. And let me tell you, it didn't take very long watching people do telemedicine. There are a lot of pain points. You also have to isolate behaviors. This helps to understand unmet needs and motivations. And different groups are going to have different behaviors. And you're going to learn from those behaviors where you need to go with your ideas. And you have to create authentic insights, ones that aren't obvious and that are revealing, that are revealing about the problem, because this is what's going to be the basis of the design process. And I think this was one of the most fun parts was creating personas. These are fictional characters that represent all the different groups of people out there that you're now going to try and serve. We decided that we wanted our personas to be on two axes, one of mobility and one of empowerment. And we came up with four personas after interviewing, I don't know, 50 or 60 pe people out in the rural community. Our first one was home-based Helen. She's a middle-aged person. She has poor health. She rarely gets out of the house, but she feels pretty empowered because she can do almost anything at home from a computer. But she needs to be empowered to manage her health, and she needs affordable local health care. All at once, Alan, he's a rural dweller that goes into town or to Walmart, and he needs to be efficient. He's going to do every single one of his tasks in one trip. He's cost-sensitive. He purchases the lowest, good, lowest price goods, even though they contribute to his poor health. So Alan needs one-stop shopping. He's going to need that for his health and his food and whatever else he needs to get while he's out. Dependent Debbie is elderly. She depends on her family members for everything. She doesn't really have any interest in taking responsibility for her health, so she really needs guided health care that's also local. And all alone Andy, he lives alone, he's unempowered, and he's hopeless to change his situation. He feels inadequate, and he feels invisible. So he needs a caring and supportive environment in which 
to get his health care. And I'm sure if you think about these four personas in a re relatively rural area, you've seen a lot of these. Well, the even more fun part is generating solutions. And this is all about brainstorming in a team setting. And anything goes in these brainstorming sessions. Any idea is OK. Nothing is ignored because you never know what you're going to come up with. It actually works. And you put all sorts of pieces together, and you come up with a solution. And then you tear it apart. You take every segment of that solution and every segment of <laughs> solutions, you tear them apart, and you put them all back together. And maybe you go from an antique vehicle to a steam locomotive, right? Who knows what you come up with? And then you test it. You iteratively test it. And if it works, great. And if it doesn't, you're back to the drawing board. But eventually, you come out of this process, hopefully with something that is a disruptive innovation. And so for our, our customer segment, again, this rural population, we propose this value proposition that we're going to provide our customers with affordable $30 per visit local primary care. It's going to be via telemedicine with mid-level providers. We're going to offer them lower price medications, and we're going to offer them access to healthy food. So how are we going to do this? This is what we came up with through our brainstorming process. We developed partnerships, first with Dollar General. There's over 18,100 Dollar Generals in the United States. And almost everyone lives within at least 15 miles from one. That's where we were going to do our telemedicine, using the telemedicine digital platforms of Amazon. And we will also use Amazon for the drug delivery uh, and for produce delivery due to their existing networks. So this gives everyone the ability to have a telemedicine help visit about five minutes from their home and get healthy food at the same time and get their prescriptions delivered directly to their door. Now, we won't talk about this part today, but it's also important if this makes money. And it turns out, if you analyze this, it does. Well, back to a complex medical system. Can this really work in a complex medical system? Well, Cleveland Clinic became the best medical system on earth by employing human-centered design. In 2007, they hired their first chief experience officer. The job of this person initially was to provide for physical, educational, emotional, and spiritual needs of patients. They stopped focusing on cost containment and positive clinical outcomes and started focusing almost completely on patient experience. They broke down all of their silos, and they created 27 patient-centered institutes centered on disease-specific um, diseases or body systems. So again, getting rid of the individual and forming the team. Empathy became a household word at Cleveland Clinic. They developed dashboards, and not just dashboards of lagging indicators like mortality, but leading indicators, things that might predict mortality. And I'll show you some of those in a few minutes. And they also did culture-changing exercises multiple times a year. And everyone did this, from housekeepers to the C-suite. So what did this result in? By 2010, the budget for patient experience reached $6.4 million. Obama visited Cleveland Clinic because he wanted to see the place where the best possible care happened at the lowest possible price. And Newsweek published a hospital that could cure health care. Cleveland Clinic also, despite having a very high case mix index, and this means how acute the patients are, the acuity of the patients, much above the US average, when they decided to start focusing on patient experience, 
their mortality plummeted in almost every single area and remains much lower than the US average. Well, disrupting the marketplace sounds like a lot of work. Couldn't we just make a big mess instead? I'm gonna argue that it turns out to be a probably not as hard as it seems. I'm going to tell you our story of our cardiovascular and thoracic surgical ICUs that I took over a year and a half ago. I picked up ICUs that were surveyed and 95% of the people that work in those ICUs thought it was a toxic work environment. There were silos. I mean, I can't even count all the silos, even just the physician silos. There were intensivists and there were surgeons and there were heart failure doctors, all really not communicating very well. Leadership was very, very young, untrained and inexperienced. And it was always someone else's fault. And there was a lot of finger pointing going on. And as you can imagine, this resulted in some pretty poor outcomes. So the executive team of the hospital decided this needed to be fixed. So myself, along with an anesthesia colleague and two outside leadership coaches, we employed human-centered design to fix this problem. And I showed you this slide in the beginning, and I told you we had to have an intentional focus on leadership, empathy, and teamwork, and that we had to change the structure of our leadership from a profession-oriented model to a patient needs-oriented model. And I'm gonna really just spend a few minutes on this slide going through what we did and the ideas that human-centered design accomplished in this setting, and then I'm gonna show you some actual data of outcomes. We replaced all of the leadership in the ICU. Um, we replaced the leadership with individuals who valued leadership and team-based approaches. And all leaders from, from then on have been, and still are, participating in external leadership coaching. And I really can't stress um, the importance of leadership. You guys know this, you have amazing leadership here already. Uh, but it's extremely important that you have the right people in place, because if you don't, you're going to have to do the hard thing of changing it. We then turned to building emotional intelligence. We performed assessments of baseline status. We provided many tools to navigate challenging situations, to help people communicate empathetically. We used the DISC profile. I don't know if you are familiar with that to help um, understand what your communication style is, how that's perceived by other people, and how you might perceive other people's communication styles. We spent an enormous amount of time empowering our teams. And I think, I'm not, I can't stress this enough, how important team empowerment is, because when you put the power in the team, they just start finding problems and fixing them. You don't even have to tell them that they're there anymore. They find them themselves because they feel empowered to change, they feel empowered to own things. And I often say to my teams that I want teams to become so strong that you forget who the leader is. Um, and I should also talk for a minute about normalizing conflict. How many, how many people in the room like conflict? I love conflict. It's one of my most favorite things on the planet because when you find conflict, you found the problem. That's where you need to go. That's what you gotta work on. So anytime there was conflict in the unit, I would actually sit all those people in one room, and I'm, I, we're gonna have a conversation about this, and we're not leaving until we have some resolution. And I want everyone to say everything out loud, and there's no talking behind backs when you go out of here. So if you don't say it in here, I don't wanna hear it. So it became really easy after a while. People just started doing this themselves. 
and they would challenge each other. And it was, uh, it was great to see that um, you can actually make yourselves comfortable with conflict. It's, pretty, it's a great thing. Whoops. We developed a lot of things we called action groups to address specific operational problems. And on those action, action groups, we would put someone from lots of different areas of the unit. So physician, nurses, APPs, housekeeping if we needed it, whatever we needed in that group to fix the problem. And amazingly, as I said, after a while, they just started finding and fixing problems themselves. They would disband a group for a while if they didn't need it. And then I see an email come across, oh, we're, we're going to put this group back together, so we need to fix this problem. And so it really does empower teams. And you, um, you can be much more effective as a leader when teams are operationally successful. We also do team building experiences that are just fun things. In terms of silos, we realigned our entire reporting structure in the ICU to completely eliminate silos. So our APPs initially were reporting to surgeons who were never in the ICU, but the intensivists were always in the ICU. So they now report to the intensivists. And we changed lots of these reporting structures just so that communication was a lot better. We created multidisciplinary teams that aligned with vision, strategy, and goals. So for example, we had a team called Team TCV ICU, and that was all about culture. And their job was to have activities and, and different things that improve culture. So we had lots of, lots of these groups. We had one for ECMO and as many things as you can possibly think of. We also developed effective communication strategies between our teams and leadership. When I took over this ICU, there really weren't any formal rounds at all between the surgeons and the intensivists. Um, it was mostly done via email, and it was most of the time the effort was intensivists being mad at surgeons or surgeons being mad at intensivists because something didn't go well. So we completely changed the rounding structure so that they all rounded together in the mornings. And a lot of other effective communication strategies throughout the, the day that we implemented for APPs and nurses to communicate better and, and so on. We also created transparency. I think this is key. Myself and my partner sent an email out every single week detailing every single thing that had happened that week. So everyone felt like they were on the same page. When you're in the middle of it as a leader or even as a worker and you're doing it, you know all about it. Every, everyone else doesn't. And I think it's important to realize how far transparency goes. We also created standards and expectations because there weren't any. Um, I did not create these standards or expectations. I had each group create their own standards and expectations. So if they violated them and got the consequences for violating them, they couldn't look at me and say, well, that was really stupid. Why did you make us do that? Because I didn't. They came up with those standards and expectations on their own. We have a system called Be Safe. And one of the things that you can be safe is a professionalism violation. So when I did this, I was told by my CMO, he's like, you are crazy. He's like, you are going to be inundated with professionalism B-safes, right? Because if you get a professionalism B-safe the first time, you just get an email from me. The second time, you actually have to talk to me. And the third time, you're going to the credentials committee, and you might lose your job. So these things are very serious. So he told me, you're going to be inundated. In a year and a half, anybody want to guess how many I got? Three. That's it. It's a very effective strategy when people set their own standards and expectations. Well, I'm going to show you a little bit of data from some of our action groups to show you that this actually works. There are a lot of things that contribute to mortality, and prolonged ventilation is certainly one of them. 
Our goal is to extubate in less than six hours. And here's our data. So I'm showing you for all surgeries and for cabbage only. We implemented a protocol in May of 2023, and you can see by August that we're at 80 and 84% extubated within six hours. And I can tell you that another 15% were extubated within seven hours. So we're really close to almost 100% extubation at less than six hours. Obviously, there will always be a patient that won't be extubated that early due to several reasons, but we are pretty close. We're having a lot of failure with renal, having a lot of problems with renal failure postoperatively as well for a number of reasons. Here is our renal failure, and you can see by 2023, this action group implemented a lot of strategies, and we're, we're way under 2% most of the time now. Another thing that we really struggled with was surgical bedside procedures, and I mean not swans and things, but I mean opening chests. And for whatever reason, our surgeons loved opening chests in, in, the, in the ICU. I know maybe, maybe you guys do too, I don't know, but it was not good because we had lots of travelers, traveling nurses, you know, coming out of COVID who were inexperienced with OR, anything. So we were having very poor outcomes from these surgical procedures at the, bed, at the bedside, mainly because we didn't have support staff there that was trained to do them. So aside from COVID, which is that little dip there, we went from anywhere six, around seven, seven and up percent of our patients undergoing getting their chest open at the bedside. And you can see we're now down to about 2%. There were some years we were well over 100 procedures at the bedside. And in 2023, so far, we've had two. So very successful implementation by this action group of many things. One, including a blast page that got the OR that they are fast and ready. So we have everyone to the OR in well under an hour, often in 30 minutes. ICU length of stay is another problem. I'll show you this slide first to show you that our volumes have been pretty steady. So what I'm gonna show you next isn't due to a decrease in volumes because it's been about the same. Here's our average of total ICU hours. You can see a steady decline. Here's the sum of total ICU hours. And if you look at it even for individual patients, you can see a steady decrease in time in the ICU. So at a high of 200 hours, we're now just over 100. So we've almost cut this in half. And this, I really think, has been due to improved communication between all of my team members. And employee satisfaction. I've talked a lot about patients, but empathy is just as important for employees. Here's where we started, and here's where we ended up. 85% thought culture had improved. 10% didn't think it had changed and 5% thought it got worse. And obviously there's always gonna be a few in the bunch that don't like the new plan. Um, this is how it goes. <laughs> I put this here again to remind us that it's important that we also have empathy for each other. This poor nurse is uh, actually in temporary shock because someone actually took care of her. Um, so I think it's important that we remember empathy for each other in this process too, because if we don't have it for each other, we can't have it for our patients. So what are the results of all of this? Well, I showed you this in the beginning, going from a profession-oriented model to a patient needs-oriented model. Well, I think we really improved organizational performance. We 
have much better collaboration, we have better patient outcomes and a much healthier work culture. And I think this leads to a lot more individual engagement. Learned helplessness goes away. There's team empowerment. Again, communication is better. And we now have a multidisciplinary approach to problem solving. Our structures are aligned now and integrated. We've gone from a focus of individual to diverse multidisciplinary team agendas. Our communication is much more effective and our patient care is now performed in a very collaborative multidisciplinary approach. And we have leadership that demonstrates higher emotional intelligence for a strategic vision and conflict res resolution. So I do believe that people can change anything they want to, and that means everything in the world. And the ones who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who actually do it. And uh, just to leave you with um, a nice childhood memory from my favorite book as a kid. Thank you. Wow, right? I think what's, what, what's amazing for those of you that don't know Dr. Taylor is that this level of thoughtfulness, creativity, and innovation um, is sort of common in all aspects, clinical care, research, education, um, a lot of things. So I actually had never seen this side of your work before. Um, let's just open it up to questions. I, I have a couple, but I want to make sure I open it up to see if anyone else has any questions. Um, Dr. Lal, let's, do we have a microphone? I have yeah. one right here. Have to Suzanne, can you get that to Dr. Lal, please? Yes. Hi. Thank you for that very insightful presentation. You've spoken about all the positive things that you were able to bring with the most recent changes that you made in the ICU. When you're always changing healthcare systems and structures, you always encounter challenges. Can you speak to some of those challenges and how you overcame them? Yeah, so I can, I can speak to a lot of those challenges. Um, so when we first started these action groups, you know, I intentionally put people in the room that didn't want to be in the room together. Um, people were yelling at each other in the beginning. Um, it was a rough and bumpy start, I will not lie. Um, I think overcoming those sorts of challenges really resulted in them getting used to it for one thing, but really creating standards for themselves. Um, I think when the administration asked me to fix this ICU, they had no idea what I was going to do. And if they did, they may not have hired me. I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> because I completely changed it. So I think I got a little bit lucky too in that um, I was going way outside of a box at an institution that likes to live in boxes. Um, so I think there's that. I think convincing upper-level administration to do this is challenging. I think once you do it once, doing it the second time is much more invited. We've been doing this in the cardiac cath lab um, with my colleague here, Mike Ragasta. Uh, so I think that's one of the big challenges. I think convincing health systems to spend money on this is also hard. So you have to come with data, for sure. Um, yeah, I think, I think a lot of it is just convincing people it's a good idea and getting them to try things. Um, one of my other favorite things to tell people is fail fast, fail often, and fail forward. 
right? And don't be afraid of failure because a lot of people are afraid of failure. And I think that was another big obstacle you got to get people past. Um, I think those are the, the biggest obstacles. I have to tell you, this turned out to be a lot easier than I thought it was going to be when I started. Um, but there are definitely are challenges, for sure. And a lot of them are at the upper executive level, if you're in a big academic center, especially. And I think, Angela, I think those are like really good overall comments, but sort of specifically in terms of getting the surgeons, the intensivists, the heart failure doctors, could you give us some granular examples of how you actually convinced them to round together? How did you get over everyone's schedule challenges? And, you know, how long does it take when they do that to then see the benefit and then they fall in line? Because I think some of these are things, I don't know if Greg Giuliano's here, he's, um, He's probably somewhere there, but um, there he is. Hey, <laughs> these are there's some of the things that that we're really kind of thinking about, struggling with, etc. Yeah, so you know, this is really where the action groups come in because I didn't tell them they had to round together. I just told them they had to fix it. Right? I, you have to figure out a way to communicate with each other, and I don't care what it is. You just have to show me it works. And they're the ones in the action group. So I had surgeons in the action group intensivist, heart failure, nursing, APPs, ECMO, respiratory therapy, and this one action group for rounding. And, and they came up with a strategy. Um, the first three strategies failed miserably. Um, so they had to go back to their drawing table a few times. Um, but they came up with this 715 touch point round where the surgeons and intensivists are both there. It takes 10 to 15 minutes. They touch base on the sickest patients and make sure their thoughts are on the same page. Um, but I, you have to let, I think you have to empower teams to fix their own problems because if you tell them what to do, inevitably, someone's not going to like it and it's going to be your fault. But if they've done it themselves, they learn to work together and reinvent, reinvent the wheel a little bit and make things work. So I think action groups are huge. Like you, you got to let people on the ground fix their own problems. And you have to guide them, but. Any other questions? Um, well, uh, let me ask you a question about the, the rural medicine work that you did, um, because, boy, uh, I mean, it, it, this idea of kind of looking and really serving your customer and the, the solutions kind of coming from those front lines, understanding those opportunities, where, where is where is that going? Um, do you have any action items around? I mean, around Charlottesville, there's some rural areas. We certainly have plenty of rural areas. Um, what, what would it take to test that to make it actionable at a small pilot level? Yeah, so I think something like that, you got to have a business plan, right? It's pretty detailed. And we I, this was one of my business school projects too, by the way, that we actually we tried to do projects actually helped us in real in real life. Um, so I think it's hashing out the business plan. It's going to Dollar General and saying, hey, this is our idea. Do you want to buy into this, right? So I think it's convincing people at that level that it's doable. You know, Walmart is already doing this a little bit, but they're doing it with real physicians in Walmart. And it costs, I think, 60, 70 bucks a visit. And most people still cannot afford that. And it's pay only, so they don't do, they don't do insurance. So we had to find something that was cheaper and really didn't necessarily mean that people had to travel a great distance to get it. So I think it's, it comes back down now to the business plan. And then you pick one or two stores and you operationalize it and you trip a bunch of times and you make a bunch of mistakes and something doesn't work and you go back and you, you think rethink it and change it until you get to something that actually is very effective. So we really haven't, we haven't gotten to the stage of testing yet, so I'll let you know. <laughs> 
Um, the, the other question I had, and, and I might actually ask some members of the audience to comment on, on this, uh, unless you're going to step up yourselves to the microphone. Um, but, but, but the other uh, question I had is, I love what you said about um, observing a process from soup to nuts, as it were, in order to understand where the opportunities are with telemedicine, for instance. You, you mentioned you're like, look, if you watch telemedicine, what the patient goes through, the setup, the experience. Um, that's been a big area of focus for all of us, right, in the post-COVID pandemic. Tell us a little bit about what some of the observations you made in terms of what some of the opportunities are to make that easier and better, both for patients and for the system. Yeah, so what we realized, uh, watching a lot of rural people do telemedicine, and, and it wasn't just the patients, it was also the physicians, is that many times they, like, never connected, and they just picked up the phone and called the patient, right? So it's just completely unsuccessful um, for a lot of reasons. Like, you, you probably have done this yourselves. There's a lot of reasons it's completely unsuccessful. And it's really unsuccessful when you're dealing with people who are not very educated about technology. Um, that was one of the biggest things. You know, we thought going into that project, someone on my team said, well, why don't we just bus them all to the hospital? They only just want to come to the hospital. And the truth is they don't. They don't want to come to the hospital. It's an uncomfortable place for many of them. And to hear the experiences of many of them who came to the hospital who felt invisible and lost and couldn't find their way around the system. This is a much more comfortable way for them to be able to get the same thing at a much cheaper price. Um, I also learned that, and I'll tell you from the get-go, I could not live without my APPs. I think they're the most wonderful thing on the planet. Um, and rural people, like physicians and APPs, they, they don't see them any differently, really. Um, they just want help, and they want it brought to them. So I think there were a lot of insights that we maybe weren't expecting, like that one especially. But it's really by spending a lot of time watching people and watching them stumble through a process. So in Dollar General, the way, the way we set up our prototype is there's someone there to help get them on. So there, there's someone to troubleshoot the problem. Uh, so that takes that piece out of it. And then most patients we interviewed were very, very um, open to doing something like that. Um, question? I have a question. Thank you so much for such a great presentation. Um, you talked a little bit about uh, your team's preoccupation with fear of failure. Can you talk about some examples or strategies that you employ to get them over that hump? Yeah, so I, I'm a fan of deadlines, right? So if you have groups, you got to have deadlines. And so I'm like, I don't care how bad it is. You know, by this, by this day, I want an answer. And we're going to try it. And if it's really bad, we're going to learn from it, right? Um, I encourage my teams to fail. Failure is one of the best things that can happen to you because you learn what not to do next time, right? Um, but I, I want them to do it. I, I'll say it one more time. Fail fast, fail often, but fail forward. Use your failures to move yourself forward. So deadlines, I think, was important. Um, failing myself in front of them, right? I wasn't perfect at this. I'd never done this before like this either. Um, so don't be afraid to fail in front of your teams, right? Uh, don't feel afraid to talk about it. So I think it, 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 again, comes down to transparency and making yourself just as human as they are and part of the team. So, um, Angela, I see kind of um, Ashley Simpson and Greg, I think they're sort of our inpatient uh, teams here, um, and Darlene. Um, I, I want to get take an example, right? You, you talked about the bypass patients. Um, and reducing the ventilation time, reducing, reducing length of stay. Um, 
What about the, the kind of patient experience aspect of that, right? So the patients then move from the ICU to the floor. They tend to spend three, four days in the floor. And I think there's always an opportunity to make that patient experience better in terms of communication, in terms of expectations, in terms of education. Um, do you, what, where do you see that window, let's say they've left the ICU, they're in the step-down unit, and they've got another three or four days before they go home, and then also the transition of care, right? So I, I, you kind of focused on rural and that, obviously you have to pick and choose, but I, I, what, give me your thoughts around what opportunities there are there. I mean, I will say one thing that we started with in the ICU that extends to the floor is something called complex patient rounds. And we have, we have criteria for when a patient becomes complex. Maybe it's how long they've been in the ICU or various other things. And we actually have multidisciplinary rounds with the family where we also we sit down and we talk about what the problems are, what, what are going to be the challenges when you get to the floor, when you get home, and just sort of set those expectations. I think half of the problem is that we don't set expectations. Um, people get upset all the time when they get woken up in the middle of the night. But if you tell them right up front, hey, we're going to need to wake you up occasionally because our job is to make sure you're still alive, right? And set those expectations and let them know what that looks like. We, I will tell you, our move from ICU to the floor is bumpy. <laughs> um, I think it is a lot of places. Um, and that's something we're just starting to take on. But I think a lot of it's setting expectations. And I think a lot of it is those, those family meetings where you prepare them for what's coming. Um, and I think if they have an idea of that, it makes it a little bit easier, um, working to prepare things for them at home, social work involved, all those types of things. But I'll keep you updated on that. We, uh, we're not there yet. <laughs> no, I mean, that's because to us, our nurses, um, you know, like most providers, as it were, are burnt out, right? Everyone's working extremely hard. We've just been through this massive pandemic. Um, and it's not like we all know that you need to have empathy, you need to communicate, but the question is finding the time, finding the processes, getting the teams together. Do we need additional resources? Do we need volunteers? Do we need um, kind of patient ambassadors? Do we need technology? Um, I all of that. <laughs> you need all of that, and you do need people, right? You need people to... I mean, for us, one of the ways we made this a lot easier, we have like little catchphrases we use to each other when things get going or are difficult, right? But you, you need people to coach people. You need people to help build emotional intelligence, right? And at the beginning, that's generally people from the outside. It's external coaches that come um, because most of us in the healthcare system don't really know how to do that. It's not we're, we're doctors, but we don't really know how to train people to necessarily be empathetic. Right. I mean, we think we're all empathetic and sometimes we are and sometimes we aren't. Uh, but I think it's a definite focus on that. And it does take people and it does take money and it does take resources. And it means you might you may have a day where you don't have any procedures scheduled because you need everyone in a room to really focus on team building. Right. So it's, it's, it's a lot of sacrifice and it's sacrifice at the top level on down. Um, but, yeah, it takes all of those things for sure. Uh, Dr. Nash. Um, can we get Dr. Can we get him a speaker, please? Um, at the at the health system level, how does administration decide what to focus on initially? You chose the ICU and the you know the, the intubation, uh, post-op intubation. Um, what what factors go into deciding what you what a health system would 
start with first and then second? Is it a matter of available leadership or is it finances or do you look at morbidity, mortality, you know, stats and, and shriek when things look really bad in one area? What, how do you make those decisions? Yeah, well, I am a big fan in situations like this to going to the worst part first, the, like the worst area you can find. And for us, you know, we have several ICUs and this was just a big standout as a really toxic environment. And that's why the administration started there. I think it's also why they were willing to throw as much money into this as they did, um, because it was a critical thing they needed to fix. And I think you start at the worst place and you move out from there, because once you change one ICU, it then looks like so much better than everywhere else in your hospital that everyone else wants to be a part of this too. So it becomes a little bit contagious, but I think you start where it's the worst. Um, I think we've got to wind it down. Just final question. You mentioned Cleveland Clinic yes. and the chief experience officer yes. um, there and the trajectory they've been on, not just in heart and vascular, but across, you know, different um, service lines. Um, surely there are a lot of lessons that they have learned and you have learned that potentially could be sort of replicated, as it were, and, and uh, is there stuff written on that? Is there um, content there that you've used and we can use? <laughs> There's a lot of stuff out there written on this, and they have a lot of materials that they've created for patients about what to expect in the hospital, what to expect when they go home, what the discharge process looks like. There's a lot out there. Um, my opinion, though, you know, Cleveland Clinic is very big. Um, I think you, Georgia can do this better than Cleveland Clinic, in my opinion. You guys are so far ahead of where Cleveland Clinic started. I mean, they started as one of the worst hospitals in Ohio, right? That's not where you're starting. I think you can go bigger and better than Cleveland, honestly. I love it. Let's end on that note. <laughs> <laughs>